welcome to episode 251 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 9th of October 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Graham. Hello. Will. Good evening. And Gary. Hiya. You're back again, Gary. You kind of hated it that much then. I dragged kicking and screaming. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you for making it all the way from Linux After Dark. Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Will, what is Libra Speed? Well, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I've got symmetric oh. gigabit broadband. Well, I've got gigabit too now, even Yay. though I've only got 100 up. Well, then you'll be interested in Libra Speed because every time you go to speedtest or fast.com, they are logging a lot of information about you and using that for selling you adverts or something. Not quite sure what. But I, uh, well, and I should say, I was looking for something which offered a bit more privacy and was a little bit more open and free. And I found LibraSpeed, which is a both a front-end and back-end server for a completely open-source speed test. There's no Flash, obviously, no Java, no WebSockets, and they claim no bullshit. So it's just a very lightweight, simple UI, not especially glamorous, but it works, and it works in pretty much every single browser. It works on mobile as well. And if you're interested in the back end, you want to know what information they're logging, you can download the back end part as well. You can run it on your own hardware. You can set up your own private speed test to, you know, AWS or something. It's just a very straightforward, simple to use speed test. It performed quite well. The, the, the default server that it chose for me wasn't quite able to go to the full gigabit, but it wasn't far off. It was about seven and 800 meg. It's just a pretty tidy, easy, open source, relatively up-to-date project. So if you're interested in setting up your own speed test, this is the project to check out. I think that's brilliant. It's amazing how many times you need just something like this, isn't it? <laughs> to give to a family member or just to run yourself. And I mm. always curse myself for Googling it and hitting the top link. Yeah, yeah, I can see that I'd have made real good use of this in a previous life when we were hosting a lot of stuff on-premises just to give the link out to customers or something and see what the latency and speed was back to our data center. Mm. Would have been really good. That's a good use case. I hadn't thought of that. Like As a service provider you can test the bandwidth through to your infrastructure without concerns for leaking information. That's a really good good idea. Yeah, it would have been really useful that we had people from all over the world uploading images to you know, a data center that was probably not best placed in terms of bandwidth and location. And just them having an idea of what kind of latency they were seeing and stuff would have been great. Mm. But even as just a hosted service, it does feel nicer to go to something that isn't a fast.com. I don't want Netflix knowing all my data. Mm. So, yeah, I'm going to have to remember this then. We should set up speedtest.muckyjpegs.com, shouldn't we? We should do, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that'll be really popular. <laughs> <laughs> I can usually tell by the quality of the 4K stream, though, Will. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, Pi OTG, Zero Conf Networking, and Afahi. Yeah, so I discovered this a few weeks ago when I was looking to use a Raspberry Pi but didn't have a local network, which is a little bit of a niche use case. But effectively, I was tethering to my phone and wanted to do some stuff on a Raspberry Pi and had client isolation and all sorts of things getting in the way until I discovered that if you put a Raspberry Pi into OTG mode, which is literally a couple of lines in the config.txt and the boot.txt or whatever it's called in the boot partition, it acts as a USB Ethernet device. 
So you just connect the Pi with a USB-C cable to your machine. It then uses zero-conf networking, which is where both of the machines get a 169.254-something-something IP address. And because it has Avahi enabled, you can use MDNS and just SSH straight to raspberrypi.local or whatever the host name of your Pi is. And it just all works. So the net result is you take a Raspberry Pi, plug it in with a USB cable, no network needed, and you can SSH straight onto it. Huh. That's very handy. My Raspberry Pi, which runs my DNS and um, routing and a whole bunch of other services, sits in my little mini cabinet with no monitor attached, and sometimes it just stops working. And in order to try and debug it, I have to go and disconnect it from the rack, bring it into my office and plug it in, by which time it started bloody working again. And it does this every so often. I've no idea. There's nothing in the logs. I've no idea what's going on. If I could just plug in to it rather than having to go via the network, maybe I've got a chance of finding out what's going on. I will give this a go. But doesn't this mean that it's not going to see the network normally? It does, because you need to unplug it and use the USB-C power socket for it. Uh, But I'm sure there is a way that you could make this work for your use case, Will. Perhaps if you added a second IP to the NIC or something, mm, mm. maybe that would work. But yeah, for this use case, literally just plug in the USB-C power socket and it works as a USB Ethernet adapter, or certainly that's what my machine sees it as, and uh, just SSH straight to it which is really handy. So you can't do it from the USB-A ports because if you had a C2A cable, you could go into a modern laptop that was USB-C and A into the Pi, but presumably that's not going to work then. Yeah, no, I think the Pi specifically, when you put it into this mode, works in a way that the USB-C port that you use for power is the one that emulates a USB network adapter. Right. So for me, this was really useful because I only had an iPad with me and I wanted to just do a couple of little things on the Raspberry Pi. Couldn't SSH to the Pi because the two machines were isolated from each other. So I plugged the Pi into the USB-C port of the iPad and could get straight onto the Pi via the USB network connection and get onto it that way do everything I needed to on the Pi. I could use it from the browser on the iPad just by going to raspberrypi.local, SSH into it from the iPad, and yeah, worked really well. Got me out of a muddle. I'm very surprised that it worked with an iPad. I thought you were going to say it was with a proper laptop or something. No, no, it, it literally acts like a USB Ethernet adapter. So anything a USB Ethernet adapter works with, the Pi in this OTG mode will also work with. Well, I've been checking out Elementary OS 7.1, This point release builds on the 7.0 release and the elementary folks obviously think it's worthy of a proper release and a blog post and everything. And the headline feature, I think, is the the new privacy stuff in that it warns you when various applications want access to various things. It feels like a real refinement of their move over to a flat pack first approach. And As I said, there's a big, long blog post about this with all of the various new features and whatnot. And I recommend it, but not to everyone. I think I always say this when Elementary OS comes up. And obviously, I'm friends with Danny and stuff, so I'm going to be a bit biased here. But I recommend it to someone who is frustrated with the way traditional Linux desktop distros work. If you have tried a Linux desktop and you just think, this is a bit clunky or this is not working how I want it to. 
then I would say definitely try out elementary OS because at almost every step, it's different. They do it a different way. I think that if you're coming from a proprietary system, especially macOS, it's not just a copy of macOS, but it takes influence from macOS. And you want something that is truly open source and made by people who care about the ethics of all of that, then I'd say definitely give it a go. I'm just having a weird deja vu, Gary. Didn't you join us the last time we talked about elementary OS on this show? Uh, yeah, for six release or something. Wow. Yeah, it's a long time ago. It is a long time ago. And nothing fundamental has changed, but there's been a lot of polish, I feel, and refinement. And especially with this 7.1, they've really just improved a lot of the things that were good already, if you like that sort of thing. And I don't think it's for everyone. I would never for one second suggest that this is a distro for everyone, but it's definitely a distro for some people. Yeah, I have to admit, I don't think I've looked at it since the last time I reviewed it for this show. And it does just seem like there's been a lot of little things that have really polished it. Like this permission stuff is really nice. Like why would I give my browser access to my location unless it really needs it or you know, whatever else? And having a nice UI where I can do that and toggle things on and off, like you say, that's existed in proprietary operating systems for quite a while now, but hasn't really had an easy way to do it inside Linux other than removing plugs from snaps and things, which is just a little bit of a pain. So it's nice to see that they're still plodding along there's still incremental improvements. Like you say, I still don't necessarily think it's for me because I like to tinker and I like to sideload apps, as they call it. But I can definitely see for a certain type of user that it would be really nice. Yeah, I think even calling it sideloading of apps, that sort of speaks to what they're trying to do here. They're trying to give you more of a product and less of a project. And they're trying to give you something that is a complete system. And you can buy hardware with it pre-installed and use it almost as an appliance at that point. I don't think it's for the kind of people who like to constantly tinker and, and make changes and, and customize exactly how you want it. I think it's more for people who just want to start using something. They just want to get it installed or buy a computer with it pre-installed and just start using it. And so it feels like probably not for the kind of person who would listen to this show, but maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. But certainly for the kind of people we would support, maybe family members, friends, that sort of thing. Yeah, I could see this being something I put on my mum's machine, for example, where she's using a browser and an office suite and that's it. And she just needs something that's really simple to use, doesn't really care if it's Windows or Ubuntu or Mac OS I think this would probably be really nice for something like that. But you just like to mess with things too much to put it on your own machine. Yeah, the bottom line is that I like messing with things. I've got a workflow that works for me, and that's broadly based around GNOME, and changing that up at this point would be a lot of work. But then some people like to change things constantly. So I think it's, there's an audience out there for it. I don't know how big that audience is, but it's definitely there. All right, well, I've got some discoveries which are sort of Graham's in a way, and let's, let's share these discoveries, Graham, and they are all audio-related. Studio One is now available for Linux. This is really significant, I think. Studio One is like a big 
digital audio workstation application that people on Windows and Mac OS have been using for years. I think even one of its original developers was an original developer of Cubase back in the 80s. Um, oh, wow. It's been under development for, I don't know, 15 years. It's got things like Celadyne in it, incorporated into it. It's used by big commercial studios. It can, it can do an, anything a modern door can do. Um, and it's really interesting that they've decided to create a Linux version. Yeah, unexpected somehow. Yeah. It's funny that we joke about audio software and it coming up here, but there's an awful lot of things that are going on and interesting releases being made. And this is one of them. There must be demand for it and people must be using Linux in their studios more and more, I think. It would probably mean, maybe notwithstanding Arda, but it's probably one of the most capable doors you can run on Linux. Reaper, arguably. Yeah, Reaper's very good. And Bitwig's amazing, but they cater for slightly different kind of, I guess like they do on other platforms, slightly different setups. Studio One's definitely good for mastering for taking the tracks that you've got and trying to create the final output. I mean, I'd, I'd say Arda is very good for that as well, but uh, Studio One's got the benefit of support for all of the commercial plugins. I think a lot of which won't work on Linux. It's interesting that even the Linux native plugins don't work. And I think there's a big caveat in lots of things currently don't work on Linux. Yeah, unfortunately, CD burning doesn't work. So that's, uh, <laughs> that means we can't travel back to 1997, unfortunately. Also, did you say it requires Wayland, which I think is a sign yeah. of things to come? Mm, yeah, that is interesting that they're just not even going to bother with X11, yeah. which seems seems pretty forward thinking of them. Yeah. And then there's another section in the FAQ on dealing with Wayland bugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, Bitwig have got something called Door Project. So as I just mentioned, Bitwig is like um, an alternative to Ableton Live, which many, many people use and there's a Linux native version. And um, the project itself has championed the clap plugin format. And we've <laughs> talked about that before. It's a terrible name. What the clap? Yeah. Great name, yeah. But it, it's actually I've seen it being adopted by quite a few projects, uh, quite a few commercial plugins and open source plugins seem to choose it. It's a really good cross platform choice without any of kind of Steinberg's VST IP. And so they do have some success in creating these open formats. And this is something that we, the whole audio workstation world needs, a way of saving in Studio One, for example, and loading it up in Bitwig, or saving it in Bitwig and loading it up in Arda. There isn't an easy way to do this. It's a bit like cue lists in the video editing world. You end up just exporting MIDI and you end up all mixing down clips. The idea is that lots more of the information is stored in a file format that they can all understand. So when you cut up audio into clips and the timing of those clips, um, how they link to MIDI, how you may have put expression on the MIDI, how you may have automated the faders in pretend mixers, whatever you've done, that kind of information is common to lots of these pieces of software. And this is a format that will hopefully let them all share that data between themselves so you can move from one thing to the next, depending on what you need to do. All right, and Arda 8.0 has been released. Yes, I only saw this today, actually, but I built it from source code. It's a great project. There's a subscription model if you want access to the binary downloads. And of course, you can usually get it for your distributions as well. Um, but it's a really worthy course to support it. But it's not difficult to build it yourself either. How long did it take you to build it? I don't think it took that long. Maybe 40 minutes on my 
I've got quite a powerful i9 Intel Linux box. Not all day and all night then. That seems quite reasonable then. Yes, it's pretty reasonable. It's pretty easy to do all the um, dependencies to handle. Well, you've got to get a load of dependencies to start off with, but otherwise it uses the WAF tool to configure and then build and then install from that. It, if you've got everything installed, it's easy to do. And order really is going from strength to strength. I wouldn't say this is like a major feature update, but things that other pieces of software I had for years, like being able to edit MIDI velocities, being able to group things together better, and being able to draw automation, and also support for a really popular external hardware device for triggering sounds. It's like Arda for a long time was just kind of work person-like tool for mastering and editing audio, and it's really good at it, but it's now much more of a creative tool. My favorite addition, actually, for this is there are three new arpeggiator plugins. So arpeggiators are things that, you know, create note data that uh, are related to the input, the chord that you press or the key that you press. And the random note generator arpeggiator is one of the best I've seen. And it's a sign that artists really become this kind of place where you can play and create as well, because at the back of it, there's all of this interconnectivity and jack power, meaning you can create this virtual environment. I know you're going to fade me out now. <laughs> it's a great release. And totally open source as well, unlike Studio One. Yeah, exactly. It's completely open source. You can clone the repo and build it. It's got everything you need. It supports clap. It supports everything. It's a brilliant piece of software. And also, it's one of those pieces of software that's well-funded, which is great because the downloads are behind this kind of subscription link. They have 6,200 subscribers, and that lets them almost $15,000 a month. And I think that's brilliant. I think I'm so happy that the model works for Arda and creates such high-quality software that is still open source. Okay, this episode is sponsored by people who support us with PayPal and Patreon. Go to latenightlinux.com support for details of how you can support us too. For $10 a month on Patreon, you can get access to an RSS feed that contains all the Late Night Linux family shows without adverts like this. There's also an option to get just this show ad-free for $5 a month. Some episodes are even released a day or so early for Patreon supporters. The ad market isn't great at the moment, and frankly, it's hard to find sponsors that don't want to do tracking bullshit, but so far, we've managed to resist that. So if you like what we do and can afford it, it'd be great if you could support us at latenightlinux.com slash support. Will, what is ISS Mimic? It turns out that for some time, the ISS space station has been sending telemetry to Earth and NASA have been making this available to anybody that wants it. Uh, I was completely unaware of this. Over the last couple of weeks, I've seen this reported in a few places. I picked it up on Hackaday, uh, I don't know, three weeks ago or so. But it's been gradually doing the round, so this might be old news to some people now. But there's a project on GitHub called ISS Mimic, where generally they're talking about building a 3D model of the space station, and they then orientate it and tip the panels so that it's kind of in the same orientation as the real space station, which is quite interesting. But what I found to be much more interesting was a kind of live stream of the data that's coming off the space station in real time. And you can just look at basically everything, like the voltages on the panels, how full the urine tank is, what the temperature <laughs> is, what the O2 tanks are, what the air pressure is. 
all of this stuff, what frequency it's downlinking on, just a whole bunch of raw data just being sort of spewed onto the internet, which I just find to be very interesting for like 10 minutes just to poke around on there. Like, for example, it's currently 22.820402145385 degrees centigrade <laughs> inside the ISS cabin i like isn't that fascinating i think it is um let's find out how full the urine tanks are they are currently uh 49 full and are normal good news the water <laughs> processor tank is 61.9300003051758 percent full that sounds good they've got loads of water there's just so much information on here it's uh, it's fascinating and useless in equal measure and i think everybody should go and have a look at it and just be fascinated for five minutes can i just say i think this has been the best discoveries ever mostly thanks to <laughs> will and gary <laughs> well i will just sneak one in and i uh, talked about it last episode but my x270 is not the most powerful machine i own it is definitely not the most valuable machine i own but it is fast becoming my favorite laptop i can't believe it's taken me this long to get a proper thinkpad and i heard nerds and hackers going on about how great thinkpads were and popey with this collection and everything and i just thought yeah whatever but fuck me man they are amazing little machines especially the x series this little thing it's powerful enough it's got a 1080p screen the speakers are decent enough it's got ports i can charge it via usb-c or i can charge it by its proprietary charger i just love this little thing man why didn't someone tell me about it? Okay, hang on. You told me about it a million times. Why didn't I listen to people telling me about how good old ThinkPads are? I'm going to have to start a collection, I think. It's the only thing for it. It's a slippery slope. There's five in this room that I can see now. Oh, no. I have three in my room, including an X270, which I didn't know I could charge off USB-C. So that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. I tried to do firmware updates with it plugged in via USB-C, and I don't think the charger was powerful enough in it wouldn't do it so i had to plug in the uh, proprietary one but yeah i just love this little thing man I, I thought it was just weird to collect them like well it's just a laptop but i've just been sort of sucked into the cult i think mm. before you know it you'll have an encyclopedic knowledge of which ones have which battery in and all sorts of other shit mm. yeah i just love that it's got two batteries an internal and mm. an external as well yeah, I'm really annoyed that they killed that feature. I think I said to you when you bought it that I used to have a T550 that had that. And this was maybe 2016, something around there. And I could get through a flight to the US and just keep hot swapping the rear battery in mm. without plugging the machine in, which yeah, seven years ago was almost unheard of. Yeah, to the West Coast as well. Yeah, yeah, it was a flight out to Seattle and literally just pull the battery out, put another one in like two or three times and yeah, wow. didn't have to think about it. It was great. Yeah. Well, I am sold on this, and I, I think that it's dangerous. I've had my first taste, so we'll see. Maybe a, a T480 is next. Gary, what's the current replacement for the X1 Carbon? Is there? Is it just the same but newer gen hardware? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's basically just keep making that yeah. 11th gen or something they're up to now. Yeah, but I hear that they just keep getting worse and worse and worse, though. I think there was a bit of a dip for a while, but I've got an X13 Gen 2, and it feels a lot better made than the X280 that I've got. So I think it comes in waves, but currently they're on an upward trajectory, which is good. I had an X220, well, I have an X220, and that's got a real keyboard, and it's a lovely keyboard. And then the X270 I had 
a couple of years later, went to that li- weird, I don't, what do they call it? Is it a chiclet? Chiclet, where, yeah. Yeah, it, that is, that's a real downgrade. And this X1's got a the similar keyboard. That is a real downgrade from the, I don't know, 10-year-old models. But everything else about it is better. I forgot to mention also that because of the dodgy RAM, I complained about it, and he said, "Oh, do you want a partial refund?" I was like, yeah, "Go on then." But I, I waited until I tested the uh, the other stick of RAM. So this thing has cost me forty five quid. God, it's a lot of machine for that. Mm. Well, I think that might be why I love it so much because it was <laughs> so cheap. <laughs> Maybe if I'd paid full whack for it, I wouldn't be quite so enthusiastic. But I'll, I'll see if I can get uh, another one for a similar bargain. But I doubt it. That's part of the fun, though, where you've got a laptop which costs you very little money and is reliable and portable. You just throw it in a bag and and off you go. And it's like, I don't know, it's just like having a a Millennium Falcon of a laptop that you can beat it up and you know it's still going to work. And it costs you so so little money that you don't care if you perhaps dint it or, you know, chip a bit of plastic off. You don't really care. It's it's just going to keep going. Well, what's funny is that I've got a Chromebook R11 an Acer, I think it is. And it feels quite similar in proportions and weight and plasticiness and everything. And I always like that R11, but the screen is low resolution and small and the process is weak and it's got hardly any RAM in it and it's got a slow disk and all the rest of it. And so it feels like that great form factor, but with an actual all right screen in it, an actual decent processor. And I think that's why I love it. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when Phelan will be back complaining as he does about AI and all the rest of it. But thank you, Gary, for joining us. It's been great having you the last couple of weeks. Thanks for having me. Until next week then, I've been Joe. I've been Graham. I've been Will. And I've been Gary. See you later. 